Video consultations with ethics. Megan Xavier tells us how. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, Megan. Long time no see. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Lawrence. How are you? Hanging in there, hanging in there. I think it's uh, middle of the week. I can't say which day because I'm not sure when we're going to publish this. <laughs> so. Well, I'm not sure what day it is anyway right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody is uh, without uh, cell phones. I wouldn't know what hour it was, what day it was. It's just one day kind of blending into the yeah. next. But uh, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a weird time in our lives. It absolutely is. My five-year-old asked me the other day, do we still have weekends? And I was so cute. And actually, not not a bad point. No, it, it <laughs> wasn't. Know, so. And it was funny because I tweeted that because I just thought it was so cute. And then I found out how old a lot of my friends are because they started writing back, 39-year-old here wondering the same thing. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a very apt question, I must say. So, well, anyway, listen, I read your article in Attorney at Work. It's titled Ethics of Virtual Consultations. And I thought, what a timely article for that because there's a lot of people out there for the very first time actually having to take virtual or video consultations. And so your article did a wonderful point by point, like walkthrough, kind of talked about some of the common elements that lawyers should be considering right now. And so for all those newbies out there that like, yes, you know, video conferencing has existed for a while, but they always felt strongly about meeting in person, especially with, you know, you know, personal and, uh, you know, maybe touchy subjects for clients who want to, you know, get a feel for your client and whether or not you can help them. So, but now you can't. Why don't we start with a basic question, if you don't mind. So can you do, this is sort of the general question, which I thought was so smart to start with. Can you do video consultations in all jurisdictions? Um, yeah, there's no reason not to, because they're really no different than sitting down with somebody across the table. So as long as you're admitted, you know, anywhere you can practice, you can be doing video consultations. Okay. Okay. And then, you know, just in terms of the rules that apply to in-person consultations and all the things you need to consider when it comes to ethics. Now, do those same rules apply to video consultations? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, although it's a different means of meeting someone, you're doing the exact same thing as when you're sitting in a room with them. You're still, you know, needing to worry about your conflicts checks and your confidentiality and all of the same things apply. There's no special rule, like, unless you're meeting by video. I like how you started your article with those two questions. So it kind of brought everybody sort of to, uh, sort of to a common space. And, and this is the part where this is the meat of the article where, okay, the thing that's different right now, it's not the rules and it's not whether or not you can do this, it's where you're doing this. So your environment at home where most people are working right now. And so you kind of broke it off into several parts, the conflicts checks, the terms of consultation, the confidentiality part of the meeting, and then the confidentiality part of the document. So let's start with the easiest one, conflict checks. Is there anything different there that might apply if you're working at home? Well, the actual conflict check, no. I mean, we still need to be running those. You still need to make sure it's okay that you're getting confidential information from this person that you're consulting with and you're not creating a problem for another client or somehow disqualifying yourself from the representation. What's a little different is that depending on how you typically run things in your brick and mortar office, you might need to adjust exactly when you're doing those conflicts checks. So if you have somebody come in and you haven't run a check yet and you have them fill out some information and wait five minutes while well, you go run those names through your system, that doesn't really work so well 
when you're doing it virtually because that person's what sitting there on Zoom just waiting for you when you disappear. Like that's really super awkward and inefficient. So I do recommend that people be running their conflicts checks before meetings start and having that through a process that I hope will continue after we're all off of this lockdown where you get all the information ahead of time. You don't waste anyone's time sitting in your office while you run a conflicts check. You do that ahead of time and then start your meeting. So you should be doing that before you're on Zoom or you're video conferencing with your client. Yeah, and I think kind of a similar theme with the terms of consultation. So, you know, you kind of talked a little bit about, um, you know, putting things in writing, requiring the client to agree and, you know, charging, attorney, client relationship, limited scope agreement, and those kind of things. But walk me through some of that because there was some, I guess, re-emphasizing certain good practices because you are, in fact, doing this remotely. Yeah. So the terms of the consultation is where you kind of figure out, like, are are you starting an ongoing attorney-client relationship? Is this just an interview where you're kind of selling yourself to them and getting a feel for them and their case and whether you want to take it? Are you going to give them legal advice? Are they supposed to leave this meeting with actionable steps and their you know problem is resolved? Like, what exactly is going to go on at this meeting. Well, some lawyers treat that laying out of those terms as kind of a sales pitch. You know, somebody comes into your office and now you go into your spiel. Well, first of all, I think that's a terrible business practice because now you're selling instead of helping them. But also, if you're wasting a lot of time doing that, when we're already having limited attention spans on video conferences, and I mean, let's face it, it's tough to stay engaged, stay staring at your computer screen, you're really not doing anyone a service by having that be part of your video conference. So instead, you really should be putting those things out to the client before you have the conference. Again, you see that theme with me. I think these things should be established ahead of time so that your video consultation is super useful. From beginning to end, that period of time that you're on Zoom, there should be value being provided. And so you can send those agreements or those terms ahead of time to the client. You can make it clear when they set up the consultation, whether that's online or through a secretary, receptionist, paralegal, answering service, um, that this is what they can expect in the consultation so that everything is really clear. And when you come into that meeting, you're just having a valuable discussion. Now, I know some lawyers have it set up in a brick-and-mortar office where there's some kind of an intake person, you know, whatever their title or exact um, role, there's someone that your clients meet with before they meet with a lawyer. Well, that too is super cumbersome virtually. It can be done. You know, you can have a three-way Zoom and you can have private meeting rooms and you can complicate the whole process. But in order to keep it simple, just have all of this laid out to the client ahead of time. And that way too, it's really clear what the relationships are and what everyone's roles and expectations are so that the conference itself is valuable. So I think that this one is probably the one that most people are concerned with. So the confidentiality part of the meeting. And so you're out of your office. You can't just simply hide inside your office and close the door. You're at home with uh, your family, your roommates. You got pets uh, roaming around, maybe some lizards and bats. Who knows? But um, (laughs) 
you know, you've got all these these things that are so, sort of out of your control, you know, at home. And so uh, just in terms of that, to ease everybody's, uh, you know, ease everybody's concerns, you know, what are some of the recommendations to maintain confidentiality? Well, first of all, make sure that the actual means that you're communicating with your client through are secure. And there, you know, the ethics opinions don't say that we have some strict liability standard. You have to use reasonable precautions. So things like a public Zoom link that you put out on Twitter and say, hey, this is where I meet with my clients. Bad idea. Not secure. Probably an ethics violation. But doing things like sharing your video conferencing links with passwords or invite only breakout rooms, waiting rooms, those sorts of things that you can do on Zoom. You need to make sure you're taking those reasonable precautions to ensure that nobody is hopping on that video call. But around you and around the client in your respective homes, there are other distractions. Roommates are a really good example that you brought up. They're not part of your family. They're probably not part of your office. And they have no business knowing a single thing about your clients. You have to make sure that you've talked to your roommates and figured out how you're going to have confidential communications with clients that they are not hearing. When it comes to family, same thing. As long as they're not part of your firm, they shouldn't be hearing anything. Now, we talked before we started recording, Lawrence, about the funny examples that everybody seems to have where their kids show up, right? My five-year-old showed up in court with me the other day when I had a Zoom conference. It does happen. Your three-year-old, your five-year-old, your eight-year-old really doesn't care what you're talking about with your client, but you still should take some precautions to make sure that nobody else is hearing your conversations. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, I think one thing that uh, maybe people are not thinking about is like you're at home with your family and your roommates, but you know who else is, is your client. And so probably make some similar recommendations to them. Hey, listen, let's talk in a private space so that uh, only it's only you and me talking. And I know you have family and roommates and everything, but this is a conversation between you and me. So I think there's probably a little additional effort to make sure that they are also being confidential with their information. Absolutely. And clients are not going to have the same level of sensitivity that you have. You might think they have more because it's their personal issues, but they aren't thinking about issues like privilege. And so it should be part of what you talk about with them, either live at the beginning of the conference, like, hey, just want to make sure we're alone. Or also, you know, maybe it's a, an and, not an or. Put it in those initial materials that you're sending them that detail what the terms are about your consultation. Also mention in there, this should be a private conversation. Please make sure you're alone. I think that's great advice. Okay, so last question, minute or less. So confidentiality of documents. And so traditionally, you know, when someone comes into your office, they might bring in a box of documents and to help you figure out what kind of legal issue that they have, whether or not you can help them, kind of give you an idea of how complex their case is. So you can maybe estimate how long it will take or maybe even give them a cost associated with your legal services. But they can't do that today. So, but they still need to get that information to you. So just do you have some pointers, tips and tricks for getting that kind of documentation success from client or potential client to attorney? Yeah, so it partly depends on the sensitivity of the material itself. I mean, if they're public records, you know, you got sued, here's the pleadings, you could drop them in an email. Also partly depends on the ability of the client, how technologically savvy they are, what access they have to online. Do they have a hard drive or are they using a Chromebook? Like, what are they on, right? So they may be able to drop things in a secure client portal if they're really sensitive information. You can set them up like on Clio or a practice management software with a secure portal where they can upload sensitive documents. Or last resort, there's always just showing you things in the camera. As long as you're not recording your video conference, that should be pretty secure 
to say, hey, like, here's my passport if it's an immigration matter, that kind of a thing. But definitely be thinking through the level of security necessary for the documents they're going to provide to you. And worst case scenario, they drop them in the mail and you get them in a week. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Megan. If our listeners, they have questions, how can they find you? Well, I'm very active on Twitter where I'm at Xavier Law. And my firm's website is ZavierLaw.com. You can always hit me up on my email through the site. Oh, and I think you're a host of a podcast. And what is that podcast uh, called? And how can they find you on that? Oh, yeah, that's right. Thank you. Um, Lawyers Gone Ethical is the name of the podcast. And it's on all the major uh, podcast players. Excellent. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Clutty. Stay strong, everybody. (laughs) 